0: If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The Archdiocese of Chicago, through the generosity of Sacred Heart Parish in Winnetka, now presents the Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, how do we deal with suffering? How do we handle the problem of pain? Those questions stand at the heart of most of the great philosophies and religions of the world. The ancient Stoics, for example, said that one should accept in a spirit of detachment the way things are. So the problem is that we suffer because we expect something different or we get wound up around things and we think, well, that's not the way it should be. The Stoic attitude is let things be both good and bad, watch them, be detached from them. And in that detachment you find a kind of peace and freedom from pain. Buddhism has as its first noble precept the claim that all life is suffering. Ah, something very powerful and profound in that insight. It doesn't mean that every moment of life is dreadful. What it means is that somehow desire can never be properly satisfied. So it leads to suffering. How do you deal with this? Well, all of Buddhism is an attempt to solve this problem. The Buddhist sages say that through meditation and negation of the self, we blow out the candle of desire. That's what nirvana means, by the way. It means the blowing out of desire. Stop Desiring, you stop suffering. Plato, the ancient philosopher, said, we deal with suffering through an exploration of the eternal dimension. We journey through philosophical meditation upward, out of this changing, shifting world, into the realm of the forms. Oh, read Plato's Great Republic, and you find this. He's trying to educate people into this mystical journey. To understand the realm of the forms means you're beyond the vagaries and changeability of this world. And you find a place of peace. Plotinus, the great philosopher, echoed Plato some centuries later. Now, if I had time, I'd go into all these fascinating philosophies in greater detail. And there's something to all of them, actually. They wouldn't have lasted so long unless there were. And you can find versions of all three very much today. But I want to suggest something to you. I think Christianity understands this problem and poses its own very unique solution. It's not Stoic detachment. It's not Buddhist annihilation of the self. It's not a Platonic journey upward to the forms. Our gospel for this weekend is a great place to see this solution on display. We're still in the context of the 16th chapter of Matthew's gospel. I reflected on it last week. Jesus saying, You are Peter, upon this rock I'll build my church. But having made that claim, almost immediately everything shifts. For Jesus showed them in an uncompromising way, the pattern of his ecclesia, the pattern of his church, what this new way of life would be. Listen. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer greatly from the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, imagine for a moment, the psychological trauma of this transition. He had just been talking about God's revelation. You know, Peter, no mere man, no flesh and blood has revealed this to you but my Father in heaven. He's talked about the establishment of a church against which the gates of hell will not prevail. He spoke of the elevation of Peter, one of their own, to this extraordinary position. They must have been thrilled. Overwhelmed. Elevated. And then, those deeply disturbing words. So at odds with what had come before. Suffering and death for the one they loved, in whom they they saw God's presence, the one who was God's anointed, Christ. They were so shocked they probably never even heard the words about resurrection. Resurrection. And then Peter. It's a wonderful irony here, I think. Peter, probably still on something of a high from what Jesus had told him, and assuming his role as head of the disciples, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, the gospel says. Just let that scene stay in your mind a bit. How extraordinary to rebuke Jesus. I find this is a very important Moment to examine our conscience. There are times when we hear Jesus, and we f- we want to do exactly what Peter did here. We want to rebuke him. You know, he's he's running so counter to our own intuitions, our own expectations and desires that we just want to rebuke him. Lord, this can't be right. You're wrong about this. When you are rebuking Jesus, <laughs> rest assured, you're in a bad spiritual space. But Peter here is—he's like all of us. He says, God forbid, Lord, no such thing should ever happen to you. You know, friends, religion is an intoxicating business. You're in communion with God. You're you're doing God's will. You're on God's side, gathered into his church. There can be tremendous emotional satisfaction in all this. Peter, I think, and the others here were no doubt reveling in the possibilities of staying in Jesus' company. He'd be the Messiah, the Lord of Israel, and they'd be his cabinet. They'd be his inner circle. They would rule with him. Here's the kind of emotional excitement that comes from association with holy things. But see, Jesus is having none of this. In what are perhaps the most shocking words in the Gospels, he rebukes Peter. The same word is used there in the Greek. Get behind me, Satan. Here's the one to whom he had just promised the keys of the kingdom. The one he had just called Rocky, Peter. Gates of hell will not prevail against the church built upon your confession, Peter. And now, almost in the next breath, he calls him Satan. Can you imagine being called Satan by Jesus? I think we're on very holy ground here because of the, the shock of this scene. The reversal here. There's something extraordinary going on. See, suffering and death... We're not on Peter's agenda. But you see what Jesus is doing. He's proposing to them the only valid solution to the problem of suffering and evil, and thereby the only valid path to joy. What? He just talked about suffering and death. I know, it's a high paradox. But he's proposing the only valid solution to this problem. What's he saying now? What's he implying? Pain, suffering will be overcome. Joy will emerge, not from stoic resignation. That's not Jesus' path. That's not a biblical path at all. Just resign yourself to the way things are, let go, become detached from good and evil. No, no. The Bible is filled with a passion for justice. So is Jesus. Nor is this a Buddhist negation of the self. None of that. No, no, you find yourself in the Christian dispensation. Nor is this, by any means, a Platonic escape from the world into the realm of the forms. None of those works, What's Jesus' solution? The sacrifice of the self in love. The solution to the problem of suffering and pain is the sacrifice of the self in love. Jesus is announcing that he's going to Jerusalem in order to give himself away. This is my body which will be given up for you, he says at the Last Supper. This is the cup of my blood. He means his life blood, which will be shed for you and for all. In those words, he sums up what he's doing in Jerusalem. He will sacrifice himself in love for the other. And in this, he will come to life and become a source of life to others Now, friends, that's it. That's the Christian solution. Easy to say, yeah. Hard to live, uh-huh. None of the three methods I mentioned is identical to this. This is a distinctive and unique path. I was just reading recently the great Ronald Knox, a Catholic apologist from the last century. He talked about the sign of the cross in this way. The first two gestures form the letter I when you gesture your forehead into your, into your heart. And the next two gestures to the two shoulders cross out the I. That's what the cross of Jesus meant and means. The way to overcome pain and suffering is to give the self away in love. In the measure that Peter didn't get it, he became a Satan. He became an opponent. He became a scandal, a stumbling block. Having rebuked Simon, Jesus gathered the twelve and pronounced the formula. We ought to be listening with great attention. Imagine yourself now in that circle of the twelve around Jesus. He says, whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The path of discipleship is the path of self-sacrificing love. And that means, again, in the high paradox, it will be a path of suffering, yes, but it's the only way past suffering to real life. Then, this statement, which you should put on your screensaver, put it on your refrigerator, put it wherever you're likely to see it. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You want to be happy? Don't be a stoic. Don't follow the path of the negation of the self. Don't become a Platonist. You want to be happy? Follow that teaching. Lose your life in love, and you will find it. Give your life away as a gift, and you'll come to resurrection. And God bless you.